Shalom. This is Gary Duroshinsky, Congregational Leader of Beth Ariel Messianic Congregation. Thank you for downloading our message. We're delighted to make it available to you through the generous donations of our members and friends at Beth Ariel. We know that many are struggling financially because of the challenges facing our economy, and we do not want financial issues to keep anyone from enjoying our teachings. So please continue to listen in as often as you like. But if our presentations have been beneficial to you, and you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at bethariel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Also, please remember to pray for us that we would be responsive to the Lord's guidance as we reach out to the lost sheep of the House of Israel in the greater Los Angeles area. Thank you, and I hope you enjoyed this message. If you have your Bibles, Leviticus chapter 23 is the first place where Yom Kippur is made reference to. It is the six of the seven festivals that are listed or spoken about in uh, Leviticus chapter 23. Many have said that Leviticus chapter 3 may very well be the most important chapter in the Bible because it gives us a panoramic view of God's intentions and purposes. By virtue of the festivals, we learn his redemptive program. By virtue of the festivals, we learn something of the prophetic picture of events that are to unfold with regard to the first coming of Messiah and his return when he will establish his kingdom on the earth. Can't get into all of that now, but we've been doing that during the course of the summer as we've been studying together about prophecy. And in recent weeks, as we've been preparing for Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and Sukkot, and Simchat Torah. So I want to talk a little bit about the prophetic significance of the Day of Atonement, but I want to talk about what the Day of Atonement is as well. But Leviticus 23 seems to be one of those chapters that gives us a panoramic view of God's intentions and purposes in the history of our world. Now, there are other great chapters. John chapter 3 certainly is an important chapter that talks about what it means to be born again. And the latter portions of all the Gospels that record the death of our Messiah. And certainly those portions of scripture that focus on his return. These are all wonderful passages that are to be studied and to be reflected on. But in Leviticus chapter 23, we're looking at the Day of Atonement. We're beginning at verse 26. Saying, now on the 10th day of the 7th month, that's the month of Tishrei, Rosh Hashanah, the the Feast of Trumpets, which is the previous festival, is on the first day of uh, Tishrei. And it says, on this day, on the seventh month, the tenth day is the day of atonement. It shall be for you a time of holy convocation, and you shall afflict yourselves or your souls and present a food offering to the Lord. And you shall not do any work on the very day, for it is a day of atonement to make atonement for you before the Lord your God. For whoever is not afflicted on that very day shall be cut off from his people. And whoever does any work on that very day, that person I will destroy from among his people. You shall not do any work. Can we lower that? You shall not do any work. Uh, Hold on. And whoever does any work, I'm on verse 30. Whoever does any work on that very day, that person I will destroy. You shall not do any work. It is a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwelling places. 
It shall be to you a Sabbath of solemn rest, and you shall afflict yourselves. On the ninth day of the month, beginning at evening, from evening to evening shall you keep your Sabbath. Now, I just want you to notice one thing here. You notice the word that was repeated three times? The word afflict. And so the prophetic significance of this festival is going to have an an affliction concept, an affliction idea. Now, the rabbis always discuss, what does it mean to afflict your souls? My translation said, yourselves, your souls. The rabbis actually said, there are two kinds of afflictions that were to take place. There was to be the affliction of the soul. That is what we do when we repent of our sin, when we confess our sin. We take inventory of our souls, and we don't like what we see. And by paying attention to it, to observing it, we are, in effect, afflicting it. And thus, in that affliction of soul, we then confess our sin and we repent of it and we ask the Lord to forgive us of our sin. But the rabbis also said, not only are we to afflict our souls, the rabbis say, not only are we to afflict our souls, but we are to afflict our bodies. And that's why this is a fast day. Nowhere in the scriptures does it say fast on Yom Kippur. But what it does say is to afflict yourselves. And so the rabbis deduced that we are not only to afflict our souls by way of repentance, we are to afflict our bodies in that context by way of fasting. That's where it comes from. Now, I want to come back to that as we bring this message to a close. But you know, there are only five places in the scriptures where Yom Kippur is made reference to. This is one of them, Leviticus chapter 23. Another passage is Leviticus chapter 16. In chapter 16, the whole chapter is devoted to this occasion. And on that, on this occasion, what the Jewish people or what was done among the Jewish people during the time that the temple stood some 2,000 years ago and before, that is before its first destruction and after it was rebuilt and then up until its second destruction, what the Jewish people did was the following. And this is in accordance with Leviticus chapter 16. We're told that the high priest on this occasion was, first of all, to put on his royal garments. Maybe royal is not quite the right word. His festive garments. And he was to come into the temple area, and he was now to begin to confess his sin before the Lord. Then he was to take off those garments, take a ritual bath, and then to put on the white linen garments, which he would use now for the sacrificial system. Now, after he put on these linen garments, he then would take a bull. He would have the priests assist him in offering up this bull as a sacrifice and atonement for his own sin. Then he would take the blood. He'd put it into a basin, and he'd go into the holy place. The holy place was the first compartment of the temple proper. In the holy place on my left side, your right side, you would find a table overlaid with gold, and on that table would be 12 loaves of bread. And those loaves of bread represented the 12 tribes of Israel. And the bread represented God's presence, or I should say, his provision among his people. That's why Yeshua, when he taught us to pray, he said, give us this day our daily bread. Bread and food is really a metaphor in Scripture for whatever our needs are. And so as the loaves are placed on the table, the loaves symbolized everything. Okay. So the high priest then would take the basin of blood, 
and he would go into, first of all, he would go into the holy place. And the holy place was that area that had, first of all, the table of showbread with the 12 loaves. And the 12 loaves represented the 12 tribes of Israel and God's provision for Israel as God provided for all of their needs. And then to my right on your left would have been the seven-branched menorah, the holy menorah. And it represented the light of God's presence among his people. It was to be kept lit all the time, 24 hours a day. So the, hot, the priests would come in in the morning and the evening making sure that the menorah was rekindled each and every, every day, twice a day. And then behind me would have been an altar. And on the altar was placed incense. And the incense would be burned. And as the incense burned, smoke would rise up in the holy place. And the smoke represented the prayers of the Jewish people. And the incense, being a sweet smell, represented the worship, the hearts and lives of the people who were praying to God, that which, uh, whose prayers would ascend into the very presence of God. And then behind the altar of incense was a veil. And the veil separated the Holy of Holies from the holy place. So the high priest, after making this sacrifice of a bull for his own sin, would enter into the holy place. And then after he went through the holy place, he would come to the veil. He would go through the veil into the Holy of Holies. Now in the Holy of Holies was an ark. The ark was like a wooden box overlaid with gold. And inside this box, a rectangular box, inside it were the two tablets of stone upon which the Ten Commandments were written that was given to Moses on Mount Sinai. Also in the ark was a jar, a clay jar of manna, the manna of which God provided for Israel in the 40-day wilderness wandering. And also in the ark was the staff of Aaron, that had budded and produced almonds that had indicated Aaron was to be the high priest and no other priest among Israel, that, that his family was chosen. And then on top of the ark, the lid of the ark, had two angels called cherubim. And their wings came together as they stood on one side of the other, and their wings came over their heads from the two sides, and they met in the middle. And between the wings was a plate made of gold. And that plate was called the mercy seat. And so the high priest, after he had offered the bull as a sacrifice for his sin, took the blood in a basin, walked through the holy place, through the veil, into the holy of holies, and then with his index finger seven times, sprinkled blood on the mercy seat in cleansing of his sin and the cleansing of the holy of holies. Then he would go back out into the courtyard and presented before him would be two more animals. And a lot would be cast. One of the animals would be slain on the altar outside in the, uh, in the courtyard for the sins of the nation. And the other animal would be left alive until after this offering was made. So now a ram was offered on the altar, the blood of which was now being used for the cleansing of the nation of Israel. The high priest would take that blood, put it into a basin, again for the second time, walk through the holy place, 
through the veil into the Holy of Holies, and again, seven times with his index finger, sprinkle blood on the mercy seat. He would then come out into the holy place, and he would sprinkle blood on the altar uh, or the table of showbread, on the altar of incense, and on the menorah. This served to cleanse the temple because all year long it was confronted by the sin of the people, even as offerings were being offered on a daily basis and certainly a weekly basis on Shabbat or on the Sabbath. This was the Day of Atonement. Now the animal that was left alive, the high priest would then take his hand, place it on the head of the animal, and confess the sin of the nation of Israel. Then a designated individual would take that lamb or that goat, lead it outside the temple area, outside Jerusalem, lead it into the wilderness, and leave it there in a symbolic gesture of the removal of our sin. So you have two things going on. You have blood, which is used for the atonement of our sin. You have the goat that is taken out of the temple, showing the removal of our sin. Now that's Leviticus 16. Leviticus 23 is what we just saw. Now in Leviticus chapter 16, we're told, or chapter 17... We're told that it is the blood that makes atonement for our sin. Later, the writer to the Hebrews will say in chapter, I'm going to say chapter 10, he's going to tell us that without the shedding of blood, there was no remission for sin. And if one was to survey the history of the world, as it is revealed to us in Scripture, It is the shedding of blood for the removal and the atoning of sin that captures our attention from the book of Genesis all the way through to the book of Revelation. From beginning to end, this is the mechanism, the means by which God has used to provide atonement for our sin. Now, you may ask, why? And that is something the scripture does not completely explain to us. The closest we get is in the book of Leviticus, where it says the life is in the blood and I have placed it upon the altar for the atonement, for the forgiveness of our sin. And so blood becomes an objective aspect to the atonement, whereas our receiving of it becomes the subjective aspect. So when a Jewish man or woman went into the temple on Yom Kippur, they had to have a contrite heart. They had to come before the Lord in prayer. They had to acknowledge their need. They had to have the subjective experience of realizing, without this provision, I am hopelessly lost. But they needed a provision. It wasn't their prayer that provided atonement. It wasn't their confession that provides atonement. They needed something to provide atonement for their sin, which they confessed and repented of. Confession and repentance is not atonement. Confession and repentance is acknowledgement of the need for atonement. Confession and repentance is the recognition of what it is that is causing this need. It is my failure to live up not only to God's expectations, but my own. Because there isn't anyone who can look at themselves and say, I am living my life as holy or as righteous or as right as I ought to be. We all know we fail miserably. We all know that we've all sinned. And I know in the 21st century, sin is not a popular word. 
but that's what it is. It's a violation of the standard of God, let alone our own standard for our own lives. Even the thief has a standard for his life. And that is, while he may steal from you, his standard is, don't steal from me. And so when he is stolen from, he gets as upset as any of us for having had our stuff taken from us. Why? Because we all have standards. And we may not like one another's standards, but we all have them. And we may not like God's standards, but those are the ultimate standards that are the basis for all standards that exist. Otherwise, there are no standards at all. There are just preferences or desires, but they're not standards for which we'd be accountable. They're only that which we find to be what we prefer over something else. That's a whole nother story. But the point is, God has provided us with a means of atonement. It requires the recognition of the need, and it requires the receiving of the provision. The blood is the provision. The receiving of it is our response to what God has provided. The day of atonement, then, is a day in which we are to come to grips with this reality. And unfortunately, for 2,000 years now, there's been no temple. And so now the Jewish people are in a very hard place. The question is, how do we provide atonement if there's no temple, if there's no sacrifice, if there's no blood? What do we do? And I think God has arranged this scenario for the very purpose of drawing our attention to the sacrifice that was offered in our place. It is God's mechanism to try to help us realize that without recognizing Yeshua for what he's done for us, there is no atonement for our sin to be found anywhere because none of us can do whatever it would take in order to have our sin dealt with. So in Jewish tradition today, you'll find that Jewish people, when they come to the synagogue, there are three things that they focus their attention on. It is tefillah, teshuva, and tzedakah. Those are the three things. Easy to remember in Hebrew because they all sound very similar, don't they? Tefillah, teshuva, tzedakah. So tefillah comes from the Hebrew word for prayer. But it doesn't just mean talking to God. Tefillah is the worship of God. And so the rabbi said, look, when you came into the temple, when it stood and the sacrifice was offered, you came in as a worshiper. And therefore, worship was essential. You couldn't be outside the temple. You couldn't be home sitting in your tent or in your home somewhere. You had to come among the people in the presence of God as he dwelt in the temple, in the Holy of Holies, the smoke of which filled it. And you were to receive the offering that was being provided in that location on that occasion. And so you needed to be a worshiper of God. You know, the Jewish people, Orthodox Jews, when we pray, we put on our forehead and on our arm the tefillin. It comes from the word tefillah, prayer. And so the reason why the phylacteries or the tefillin is put on is because it is part of the prayer ritual and practice. And so the rabbis tell us, well, one thing you need is worship in order to have your sins forgiven and to be cleansed of them. The second thing they mention is not only you need to be a worshiper, a genuine worshiper, a true worshiper of God, you had to be one that was offering teshuva, 
comes from the Hebrew word shuv, which means to return or to turn or to repent. When you turn from your sin, you are repenting of your sin. When you acknowledge your sin, you're confessing it. When you are repenting, you are agreeing with God, yes, this is wrong, and I now turn from it. So teshuva, or turning, is repentance. So the rabbi said, look, when you come into the temple, when the worshiper came in, and the high priest offered the sacrifice, not only were we to be worshiping God, but we also were to be turning from our sin. We were to be confessing our sin, and when the offering went on the altar, we were determining, we ought to have been determining, to turn from our sin and to follow a new path. The sacrifice in and of itself did not cover our sin without a turning from sin. Otherwise, that's an abuse of what God's provided. That's religiosity. So the rabbi said, look, you need to have a genuine turn of heart. And so teshuva was a second aspect to the repentance or to salvation or to atonement. The third thing was tzedakah. It comes from the Hebrew word tzaddik, which is a righteous one. You know, you always called a righteous man in the synagogue. He's a tzaddik. He's a righteous one. When growing up in the synagogue, we used to have a little can, and we used to put tzedakah in it, coins. And it was like money. And the money was collected and was sent to Israel, maybe to plant trees or to help build the community or to help the poor. Tzedakah was an act of righteousness. It was a good deed. So the rabbi said, look, Not only were you to be a genuine worshiper of God when you came into the temple, and not only were you to be a genuine repenter of one's sins, but you also had to be one devoted to doing good deeds. And so when we look at what the rabbis were uh, conscripting, what they were putting together was what we were to do. It became a works-oriented mechanism to have atonement experienced. And forgiveness applied. But that's not what the Bible says. What the Bible is telling us, what the Mosaic Law is telling us, is indeed, for sure, we need to be worshipers. We're told to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's what it means to worship God. And indeed, we're to repent of our sin. For sure, we're to turn from our sin. And no doubt, we're to do good deeds. Yeshua was asked, what must we do to do the works of of, uh, of God. And he said to believe on the one whom he has sent. It's a good deed to believe in God. It's a good deed to recognize Yeshua as Messiah. But the point is, if we're left to ourselves, none of us is going to accept Messiah. We're going to go on our way. Left to ourselves, we're not going to do good deeds that are of any significance, because then they become selfish deeds. You know, Yeshua said, let your light shine before men that others may see your good works and do what? Glorify your Father who is in heaven. But when you do good deeds motivated out of your own self, what do you really want? You want people to see your good deeds. And you want people to see your goodness. But when good needs are prompted by the work of the Spirit of God, it is not we who we want seen. It is the Father we want seen. It is the one who has enabled us to do good deeds that we want seen. And that's why Yeshua says, let your light shine for sure, do good deeds. But make sure they know where those good deeds are coming from. They're not sourced in us. 
they're sourced in him. So if we're left to our own devices to be worshipers and repenters and good deed doers, none of us can repent completely. We read last night, you know, the prayer of Rabbeinu Nissim. What an interesting prayer it is. He said, if I was left to just repent of my sin by my own prayer, I don't even know what they are. I couldn't even begin to catalog them all. I can't even remember them all. And I don't even realize the depth of them all. We need God's help. Not just to awaken us to what it is that we need forgiveness of. We need him to help us from beginning to end. That's why Messiah came. That's why the Day of Atonement, as it's revealed in Scripture, is very different than the Day of Atonement in Jewish tradition today. And has been for many centuries. It is what God has done for us, not what we do for ourselves in the hope that God accepts it. God has already accepted the ultimate sacrifice made in our behalf. It is now up to us to accept what God has already accepted. That's what the resurrection of Messiah is all about. It's the indicator that God has accepted his offering. And now it's for us to accept his offering in our behalf that we might have life, and have it more abundantly. Otherwise, this is a day, but no atonement. If it's to be a day of atonement, then Yeshua's death has to be applied to our lives and to our hearts. And that's why two other places, I said five places, Yom Kippur is mentioned, Leviticus 16, that's what we just were talking about. Leviticus 23, that's what I read. Numbers chapter 29 tells us the sacrifices that are to be offered and how it is to be applied on the sabbatic, on the, when it falls on the Sabbath, like today, or on the sabbatical year or the year of Jubilee, the seventh year or the 49th year. That's what Numbers 29 is about. But then two other places, really interesting, in the Brit HaDashah, the New Covenant Scriptures, Hebrews chapter 9 and Hebrews chapter 13. Chapter 13, this is kind of fascinating. It says that just like on Yom Kippur, when the, the goat is taken out of the temple, led into the wilderness to die outside the camp, so Yeshua, when he died for our sins, the writer to the Hebrews, he makes the point. He too, like that offering on Yom Kippur, died outside the city on Golgotha at Mount Calvary. He was ushered out of Jerusalem and then, or outside the city gate of Jerusalem, second gate, and then brought to his death in our behalf. He makes the, compa- the writer makes the comparison, Hebrews 13, with the taking of the goat outside the city. But in Hebrews chapter 9 and 10, that's the fifth place, Hebrews chapter 9 and 10, he tells us that while the day of atonement sacrifice was meant to make atonement for the sin of the people, he makes the point, that it never really took away sin ultimately. For if it did, now listen, this is a great point he makes. For if it did, it would not need to be repeated every year. If it's being repeated, it's because it hasn't done the job that it needed to do. Therefore, we need to do it again and again and again and again. But what the writer to the Hebrews makes is that when Messiah of Israel came into our world and gave his life, He gave his life one day, one moment, forever. 
never to die again, never to be repeated, never to be needed again. For his death takes away all of our sin. And that's why in Micah it says he casts our sin into the depths of the sea. Tashlich, the casting of our sin, you know, with the bread. Some of you are familiar, some aren't. That's taken right out of Micah where it says he would cast our sin into the depths of the sea. Other prophets say that our sin would be as far removed for us as the east is from the west. How far is that? It just goes off into eternity, right? And so the Lord will take our sin away completely so that we stand innocent before the Lord, declared guiltless, and thereby fully accepted as his child and fully accepted and granted eternal, eternal life. Now, I didn't say much about prophecy, and, uh, but I do want to just point out one thing with regard to the return of the Lord. That's for another day. But there's a wonderful, wonderful passage in the prophet Hosea. Because this day of affliction prophetically looks to the tribulation period when Israel will be afflicted both in soul brought to a place of repentance and in body during the seven-year trial and tribulation. That's why, and I think this is why, but this is what I believe it's why, Leviticus 23, three times, he says, you are to afflict your soul. You know what's interesting? In Hosea, at the end of chapter 5, I'll just read this to you and you'll see. Hosea says, chapter 5, verse 15, I will return again to my place. Now, that's an amazing passage already. What do you mean, God? This is God speaking through the prophet, saying, I will return to my place. Where is the place that God would return to? Where did he come from? Well, his place is where? In heaven. So if he's going to return to his place, that means he's returning to heaven. That also means he had to have left heaven. You know, had he returned to a place you've never left? So he had to have left. Where did he come to? Well, we know from the Brit Shah he came to earth. In the second person of the triune, triunity, the Messiah of Israel. But now Hosea says, we can't get into it all, but now Hosea says in chapter 5, verse 15, it's just to whet your appetite. You'll come back next week and we'll, we'll talk more. But look at chapter 5, verse 15. He says, I will return again to my place. This is so much like what Yeshua says in Matthew chapter 23. You know, he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I wanted to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks, but you would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. He says, you will not see me anymore. He's going somewhere, right? Because they're not going to see him. Why can't they see him? It's not like he's going into hiding. He's leaving them. And he says, you will not see me anymore until you shall say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's the trigger for the return of Messiah. We'll talk about that in the next few weeks. You will not see me anymore until you, people of Israel, until the Jewish people say, Baruch habab b'shem Adonai. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Why won't they see him again? Because he's going to return to his place. What is Hosea 5 telling us? There's coming a time. Didn't happen in Hosea's ta- time. That's 750 years before Messiah. So Hosea is telling us there's coming a time when God's coming. But he's going to leave us and return. Now look what he says. I will return again to my place until they, he's talking about his people of Israel, until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. And in their affliction, there's the same word you find in Leviticus chapter 23, three times. 
on Day of Atonement, you're to afflict yourselves. Now he's telling them that what will lead them to seek the face of God and to bring about the return of the Messiah who would return to his place in heaven, what will trigger his coming? He tells us, in their affliction, earnestly, they will seek me. What will it be? What will it take for the nation of Israel, our Jewish people, to come to know Messiah, that he would return to them? It will be a period of affliction. And just as Yom Kippur is to be a day of affliction, so as to turn to God, there's coming a Yom Kippur day of affliction. Brita calls it the period of tribulation. It's a time of affliction that is meant to turn the hearts of his people to seek the face of God. But here's the beautiful thing. We don't have to wait for affliction. This is a period of grace. This is the day of harvesting. We said, right, four months, you have the harvest. John chapter four, we talked about that a few weeks ago, I think it was, or last week. This is the period of harvesting. This is the period when God is taking up for himself those who would seek his face now without having to go through a period of affliction. And so if you've never invited the Lord into your life, this is your lucky day because this is the day of atonement for you. And if you know the Lord, the day of atonement is every day because his atonement applies to our lives each and every day. Why? Because each and every day we need his atonement. That is what gives us life. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And I remember one preacher years and years ago said he's the way, the truth, and the life. Without him, there's no going. Without him, there's no knowing. Without him, there's no living. And so the day of atonement can be a day of life for each and every one of us. And if you've never invited him into your life, that's what you need to do. You need to apply the blood that is offered to you, to your heart, and to your soul. And that means the affliction of your soul. You've got to take inventory and say, I have a real need. If you don't have a need, it doesn't come. And that's why even Hosea says, my people don't realize they have a need. It's going to take some affliction to lead them to a place where they will realize, I have a great need. But if you can come to that realization, you are a very fortunate, blessed individual. Because coming to that realization means you now can come to the cure or the provision. The Messiah of Israel who's come into our world to give his life a ransom for many. Most beautiful passage, right? I think it's Matthew 11 or so. Where Yeshua says, come unto me all you who are weary, afflicted, and heavy laden, afflicted. And I will give you rest. You want that rest? You have to admit your affliction and your need. But if you do, you'll find rest. You'll find peace. You'll find acceptance. You'll find forgiveness. You'll find life more abundantly. Let's pray. And as I pray, the worship team can come on up. Father in heaven, we thank you for this morning. We are grateful for the opportunity to worship you to praise you, and to give you all glory and honor. We thank you, O Lord, for what you have provided for us. Yeshua has come. Atonement has been offered. And Lord, now we rest upon you to stir our hearts, 
and to bring us to that place. And for each and every one of us, it involves an affliction of some kind. For we have to face our own limitations, our own failings, our own weaknesses. And to acknowledge that we are not what we think we are. And we do not have the resources that are needed in order to have the life we desire. So, Father, I pray that even as your word is brought forth, that both here in this room and for anyone who may be watching online, my prayer, Lord, is that your spirit would probe the depths of our hearts and that we would turn to you. For some, it might mean a turning in salvation and the receiving of you as Messiah, Savior, and Lord. For some, it's a confession of sin in our lives, habits that have grabbed hold of us, that we need your power and might to free us from. Father, for some, it's simply an attitude that we possess. We need you, Lord, to break it and to enable us to be changed and transformed, to be a different kind of person than perhaps we once were. But whatever the need is, might we turn to you, and might we turn to you quickly. None of us knows how much time we have. None of us knows the next moment in our lives. Now is the day of salvation. Now is the day that you've granted to us. Now is the day of atonement. So, Father, might you do your work of saving and restoring and bringing life into the hearts, minds, and lives of individuals. We bless you, Lord. We praise you. We glorify you. And we pray in Yeshua's name. Just as we close, I want to share a prayer with you that is recited on Yom Kippur. And then Bob will blow the Tekiah Gedola, and then I'll offer the benediction and we'll be closed. This lengthy prayer ends with this final paragraph. It is our duty to praise the Lord of all things, to ascribe greatness to him who formed the world in the beginning. Since he has not made us like the nations of other lands and has not placed us like other families of the earth, since he has not assigned unto us a portion as unto them, nor a lot as to unto all their multitude, for we bend the knee and offer worship and thanks before the supreme King of kings, the Holy One, blessed be he. receive the benediction. Yivarechech Adonai v'yishmarecha Ya'er Adonai panavelecha v'yichunecha Yisa'a Adonai panavelecha Vi lecha.
Shalom. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance, lift up his good pleasure, lift up his glory upon you and grant you his shalom, his peace. For we ask in the name of Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah, Sar Shalom, the Prince of Peace. Thank you for listening to our message. We hope that it serves to encourage you in your walk with the Lord and your service to Him. Do remember us in your prayers, and if you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at BethAriel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L.org. Thank you again, and may our Heavenly Father richly bless you as you continue to follow Him. Shalom, shalom.